what is wrong with me? Am I even like, did like, I don't feel like a woman anymore. Am, am I ever going to be a mother? There's like, what did I do wrong in the past? What did I do wrong in the last few days, months, year? So you're, con you're constantly questioning yourself and your, your worth. And, and on top of that, there's like a lot of jealousy and anger that, and resentment that builds up inside you when, when you continually have failures or you continually are losing babies and you're looking at the world around you and you're like, you feel like everybody's getting pregnant and it's not like you hate those people, but there's like this deep, like knee jerk reaction at, at all of this. It's like, why isn't it happening for me? Why, why doesn't my body work? Why, 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 why? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Miriam Steinberg. She's the author of Catalog Baby, a graphic memoir about a single woman's efforts to conceive in her 40s. Welcome, Miriam. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy you're here too. And your, I've gotten to look at your memoir, your graphic memoir, and it is really something else. I am new to the graphic genre just because I mostly read books in the traditional form, but I've read a few and I noticed that it is really a different experience. And I'm, I'm curious when you knew that you were going to go in this graphic route. Well, at some point, probably about halfway through my journey trying to have kids, um, it kind of got to the point where it's like, this is a story that needs to be told. I couldn't find the resources that really spoke to me. Like either they were too technical mm. and sciencey, or it was like little vignettes that were completely out of context and didn't really do anything for me. And, and on top of that, like there was just, you know, like there's a whole mega effort of of having a fertility journey and the grief that can go along with it but also there was these really crazy hilarious moments and I think it was those crazy moments of like what the f just happened to me moments that made me realize that it's a it's for real and it's it would make a really at first I was like oh it would make a really good theater piece like a mm -hmm. one woman show um but just the thought of of writing a play and performing it over and over and over again, just like, it's just, mm -hmm. it's not me. Mm -hmm. And, and so I switched over to thinking maybe it would be a book. And when I thought about it as a book with lots of words, like, uh, yeah, it, it was, it didn't work for me because it was so many experiences when you're going through loss are so visceral and so impossible to describe with words. And so I, I was like, okay, well, I'm also a very visual person mm -hmm. and I can translate this in an image. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided that I was going to try and do it as a graphic novel. And ironically, I, I think I'd read like one graphic novel my entire life. So mm -hmm. I had to do a lot of research and read tons and tons and tons of graphic novels to kind of figure out how to do that. That's interesting. So it wasn't like, it wasn't sort of a modality that you were used to or that you, you had your, you just knew that it was for you somehow. Exactly. Yeah. But just because it was, you can layer so many emotions, you can layer so many um, 
facts and like you could have like a scientific fact at the top that will help your reader understand what's going on medically mm-hmm. and in the actual image you have what's going on emotionally Yes. I mean, it is true. And I, you know, some of the illustrations are really, I mean, you do, you do convey so much with the illustrations and anyone who gets this book will see what I'm talking about. And there are some very painful visuals as well. You know, there's this one uh, image that's, that's stuck with me, which is of you uh, laying on a, a table, an examining table, and everyone is basically doing something to you. And you've sort of highlighted your brain see through your head so you can kind of see your brain and you just understand and, and it's it's addled it looks you know raw and and you just really understand what's happening in that experience in a bigger and more nuanced way mm-hmm. because it's just so so much stimulation and so much going on with your body and what is happening it almost for me feels like a shutdown slash like freeze brain freeze shutdown and trauma moment well yeah i mean it definitely gets to that like your body's no longer your own you know, you're being poked, you're being prodded, you're mm-hmm. constantly having blood tests, you're having ultrasound ones stuck up your vagina, you have mm-hmm. um, psychologists or counselors talking to you, making sure that you know what you're doing and, and have all the information you need. And mm-hmm. you have, um, you know, just like everything about you no longer belongs to you, it belongs to the goal, which is having a child. Right. And that is, that is, I feel like I I really want to dig into that. And I guess what I should go back to, first, I want to ask you, you have a background in art, don't you? I do. Yeah. I've done a lot of visual art and I've also organized a, a big arts festival. Right. And, but what's also interesting to me is that when I found out that you weren't personally the illustrator for the graphic novel, which is, which means to me as a writer that I'm going to have to then convey to somebody exactly what I mean. And I'm so curious about the collaborative process there. Yeah. I mean, I scoured the internet for an illustrator and then I, it turned out that the person that, that I wanted actually lives in Vancouver and I know him quite well. Mm, wow. Um, because I had hired him as a clown for the festival that I <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> was that I had organized. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he has a he, like he has a very um, strong background in theater and deep clown, and and so I knew he could translate emotion um, at least physically. Um, and then he had posted some of his illustrations that he'd started doing on Facebook, and I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly the look that I'm looking for. And so we started talking about it. And part of me is like, oh, what's going to be like having a guy do the illustrations? Mm-hmm. Because like he has, I mean, he does, A, he doesn't have kids. B, he's a man and cannot begin to understand truly what's going on inside the body mm-hmm. of a woman who's mm-hmm. trying to get pregnant. Um, and so I just had to trust that uh, the art would kind of rise above that and so what I ended up doing was I wrote a script and I also storyboarded Mm -hmm. so the entire book I did these really scrawly awful stick figure drawings Mm -hmm. Um, so like all the uh, metaphoric images that you see in the book those were all my ideas Mm -hmm. and and I gave both the storyboards and the script to the illustrator and then he translated them into the drawings that you see now. Wow. And then I would imagine, am I right to assume there was a back and forth with those images and sort of edits after that? To a certain degree. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, I hate micromanaging. Mm. So I would kind of let him do his thing. And then what I would do is um, at each 
because there's kind of three different processes that he goes through. There's like the rough, rough sketches, and then there's the inking, and then there's the final cleanup of each of the panels. And so I would have a Google Doc running for every mm -hmm. page that he would submit. I would make notes like this needs to change. Oh, I don't look like me or mm -hmm. no stirrups don't go, come on a exam bed. Don't hang from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing again. It feels so mean to laugh about that. But how would he know? Exactly. Um, right. <laughs> um, well, this is so interesting because I have to ask also then, I didn't intend to go down this whole rabbit hole of the graphic stuff, but how long from inception to publication was the process? It was about three years mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was it was long well you've got me beat uh like time wise I was double the length for mine and I don't even have images so <laughs> it's not that bad or daunting I guess um okay so let's let's go back a little bit here and and hear a little bit about your backstory now that I've dug in over there um I'm curious what your orientation was to motherhood prior to having your kids or embarking on this what what growing up or in your 20s was your thoughts about motherhood in what your future held? Oh, they were relatively neutral, actually. Um, in my 20s, I was like, I don't know if I want a kid. Maybe I do. Well, I mean, there's kind of two parts to it. There's the me assuming that I would have a family, but it was such a silent assumption that, oh, that's just kind of what everybody does. Um but then there was also the the like more conscious fact that I was like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I do want to know what it feels like to be pregnant. I don't know if mm -hmm. I want the actual children, but I know I want to know that I want to, that I want to know what it feels like to be pregnant. And I actually mm -hmm. considered being a surrogate for a gay couple mm -hmm. um, just to have that experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, it never happened, but I considered it. Um, and then in my early 30s, it's a very ironic thing happened. I actually accidentally got pregnant and it was with the wrong person and mm -hmm. it just wasn't the right time in my life. And I ended up having an abortion mm. and ironically it's that abortion that completely switched everything. And I was like, I a hundred percent want children. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So now I really yeah. want to spend a little time here because I did not know this part of your story. Is that in your book? It's not in my book. I I thought about it and I was like, I just, it, I, I was either too scared or I felt like it didn't advance the story to include that mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. I understand. And then you might've had to circle back and really keep coming back to it. And it would have maybe taken the focus in a different place or something. Mm -hmm. It's a big decision as a writer to know what to include or not. Um, I hear what you're saying. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because was it an immediate reversal for you? No, and it wasn't like, and it, and to be clear, I never regretted what having an abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just knew that at some point, I wanted to make sure that I was with the right guy and I wanted to have kids. So it wasn't like had the abortion the next day. I was like, oh, my God, must have kids now. No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it wasn't that at all. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of like a a clarity that came to me where I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, no, actually, like all that kind of haze of like, will I, won't I, do I want, do I not want that kind of all evaporated. And I was like, no, OK, I know that I want kids now for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just continued on with my life and I was organizing this festival and I kind of got completely subsumed by 
the festival and I forgot to do the things necessary to have a family. <laughs> mm-hmm. And were you getting any kind of um, interest from family members? I don't know what kind of you know, uh, concern or hope they had? Were, were you hearing from any relatives about you should really have a kid or was it not something they cared about? They, oh, I think especially my dad deeply cared about it, but neither of my parents pressured me at all. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember them once overtly mentioning, oh, so your clock is ticking. You should really consider having kids now. <laughs> you really need to meet that person now. Mm-hmm. You know, they just kind of let us do our life and mm-hmm. come what may. Mm-hmm. And so here we are, set the stage. You're about how old when you start to maybe wake up from this this busyness and realize, whoa, I, I need to maybe pay attention and do something. So I was probably about 38, 39, where probably around 30, yeah, 37, 38, where I was like, it, it was starting to trickle back in where I was like, oh, I really want to meet somebody. Um, and that included like, you know, with the long-term plans of having a mm-hmm. family. And then by the time I was 39, I was like, oh, yes, it needs to happen, like, now. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm running out of time. I have no time. Um, And then I met somebody over on New Year's Eve, actually, um, when I was 39. And we started dating. And, like, there's all this stuff, you know, a bunch of little red flags. But the main Mm -hmm. one was, like, Mm -hmm. his age. He was younger than me. I wasn't sure that uh, whether or not he wanted kids eventually. I didn't – I was, like (laughs) – scared to ask his age because I didn't want the wrong mm. answer <laughs> and it's it's, it's in the book really like how long did you date awkward. uh I think I finally figured out his age because he mentioned it in passing when we were probably like three months together already oh okay it wasn't like yeah. five years and no, you didn't know how no, old no, it no. was <laughs> <laughs> no um and in total we dated about eight months okay yeah. and so and so that were you thinking he was a strong contender I was thinking that uh, a strong contender only because he he was in my life at the time and he, I was still so there's historically there's always been a big gap between partners for me mm-hmm. um and so i've lived for at that point probably at least 10 or 12 years with this fear that i would never meet somebody with whom i would settle down and and have this family and and so there's this anxiety that re- that kind of revolves around that and mm-hmm. this um wow, this is like the first time i'm actually talking about this publicly mm-hmm. um uh and a lot of insecurities and and you let a lot of things slide Mm -hmm. and I was really living that quite deeply and and so I was like okay well you know he seems to like me and we're and we're our relationship is going relatively well okay this is I'm gonna have to have this good conversation and and see where it goes um because I just it was like my biological clock was ruling the roost at that at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, you know, I, I that he didn't want to have kids, right? Right. Uh-huh. And so I know that you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that you decided that kids were more important than a relationship. 
So would you say that that was what started you on the path to figure out how to do this on your own? Yeah. So when we finally broke up, it was in big part because he wasn't ready for kids. And I'm like, well, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's like, well, I don't want to hold you back, blah, blah, blah. And so um, I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to do this on my own. This is me thinking to myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell him that I was about to try and mm-hmm. maybe have kids on my own. Um, like I, I, I just kind of looked back at my history and the fact that there had been these big gaps between partners and the fact that I was 40 now and, mm. And I'm like, okay, I don't have time. Um, I, and so we broke up and, you know, it was, it was also at the same time that I was breaking up with my festival. Like mm-hmm. I had had a massive burnout from it. So I ended up shutting that down. And so it was shutting down this huge part of my life that was basically my identity mm-hmm. and then shutting down my one and only hope at having a biological, mm-hmm. a, a child with a partner with whom I was with and I knew who the, to whom the, the sperm belonged and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So it was a lot, you know, it was quite a traumatizing time and it was quite devastating. Um, mm-hmm. But also in some sense, it was a bit of a relief. It was after, after I got through like the real muck and like heartbreak of it, a few weeks later, I was like, okay, maybe it's for the best. I don't have to negotiate with anybody. I don't have <laughs> to figure anything out with somebody else. Like I just can do it on my own timeline and so I'm going to give myself until I'm like, until my next birthday, if I don't meet anybody, then I'm doing it for sure. And, and then I also kind of gave myself permission to at least book an appointment because I knew there was going to be a waiting list. And mm-hmm. uh, there was, I, I think I booked it in December and I couldn't get an appointment until May mm-hmm. and my birthday's in April. So it mm-hmm. all worked out very mm-hmm. um, serendipitously. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so this, it is interesting when you talk about it this way, I'm reminded by, I'm reminded of how the changes happen, but it's the, the decision to change or the, the changing that's the most painful sometimes. The, the letting go of the thing you wanted or the realizing that something that you had in mind may not happen. And then you have to kind of destroy that old idea. And that's the really painful part. Oh yeah. That's it's like, it's like tearing your guts out sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I cried so much and I, I was in physical pain, like just from the stress of it all. And at that time I was climbing a lot and mm-hmm. that was basically my savior. I would climb like three or four hours a day just to kind of clear my mind and, and sure. make space and heal. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was really a huge moment of change and very painful and very this new world and having to rebuild my identity from scratch. Yeah. And it also feels like there was this, um, I feel like you were kind of solitary, you know, like you, 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 I'm sure you had friends to talk to about this, but it feels to me like this decision is such a solitary one. Well, it has to be solitary yeah. because you don't have a partner. Again, it comes with the negotiation bit, right? Like you don't have anybody that you have to figure stuff out with. You don't mm-hmm. have to um, depend on somebody else's timeline, somebody else's emotions. It's everything has to come from you. Like, do I, is this a decision that I want to take? Is this, uh, does this work with my timeline? Does this, do I feel like I'm emotionally strong enough? 
uh, financially strong enough, physically strong enough, like all these things come into, into account and it's all stuff that is deeply personal. Mm -hmm. And so for people who have not been through this experience themselves, um, can you explain the the difference between the the different types of uh, procedures you had to undergo to get yourself ready? And then, and I realize this is very much about in the book. So I realize you can't, you're not going to give us everything right now, but just like a primer on what you had to, uh, you know, deal with. I mean, in the very beginnings, it's all about testing your hormones, seeing your physiologically everything is working, your uterus, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, um, your cervix, like making sure just structurally you're good, mentally you know what you're going into. So it's a lot of that. Um, Mm -hmm. This is quite invasive a lot of the times. Um, And then because you're doing it on your own, you have to find a sperm donor. Mm Mm-hmm. And that can be really complicated because there's all these possibilities. You can choose a known donor, an anonymous donor. Do you go some rando on Craigslist? Do you Mm -hmm. go to a sperm bank? Do you like, what are all the possibilities? And you really have to kind of see where your priorities lie, what kind of legalities are around it, Mm -hmm. um, because that's a huge part of it. And with a known donor, there's a huge amount of legal stuff that goes into it and even if it's somebody that you never will see ever again if you have sex with them they can claim paternity at any time wow yeah that's a little frightening it's it is right yeah yeah so what which direction did you go in i well depending on where i was at in my fertility journey so when i was doing the iui which is basically the turkey basting at the clinic Mm -hmm. um i went with sperm donors from a sperm sperm bank Mm -hmm. um and i ended up using two different donors because one of them the first one i'd had one miscarriage and lots of unsuccessful um pregnancies and then so i switched to another anonymous donor. I did one DIY with a friend of mine. Um, we didn't have sex, but mm-hmm. um, it's in the book. I think it's one of my, it's one of the funniest moments of my <laughs> entire fertility journey. I I have no idea what, what scene you thought was the funniest in the book, but for me, that one definitely stands out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a, such a variety of conversations you would never have unless, you know, it's you're in this specific situation. Yeah. Um, it's so, okay. So then, and I know, I know there's, again, um, there's a lot of nuance to what you experienced and I know you spent, I know you had miscarriages. I know that you had months in the hospital. So do you want to pick out one of those, those little anecdotes to talk about here so that, you know, I want to leave some for people to read in your book, but Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to talk about maybe, did you have a point where you thought I just can't do this anymore or like what kept you going? Uh, so what kept me going was the goal of having a baby. My counselor that I was seeing, um, after, usually after every loss, when I switched over to IVF, um, you're actually assigned a counselor. So you get one counseling session per, uh, round of IVF mm. and, uh, by the third- and, and IVF, I mean, I know what it is, but do you yeah. want to just, uh, explain what that is and exactly? Yeah, sure. So IVF, you're loaded up with drugs, which help stimulate um, the the eggs in your ovaries. So the mm-hmm. well, the follicles that contain the eggs, 
Um, and so when you're not um, taking these drugs, a woman typically will produce anywhere, I don't know, like one to four eggs per, per cycle. And I mean, that being said, like a woman is born with all her eggs, but uh, during each cycle, one to four of them just kind of grow in the ovaries and become a possible, mm -hmm. um, a, a pos they, can, they can drop into your uterus and if there's sperm, then it can become a baby. And so with IVF, you're given these drugs and it's m way more follicles potentially can, can grow. And so then they remove the follicles once they are at a specific size and each follicle hopefully contains an egg. And then the eggs are put in a petri dish with the sperm. They have a little happy dance and <laughs> hopefully blastocysts are created. And the blastocyst is the group of cells um, pre-embryo. Mm -hmm. And then you have to hope that if they do get created, that they're viable, right? And then at a certain point, they're implanted. Right. So, I mean, there's two ways you can go. You can get them tested, um, which I did because I did have one pregnancy with a baby who had a genetic fetal anomaly and I just mm -hmm. couldn't go through that again. Um, but loads and loads of people have their blastocysts and don't get them tested. And um, you can look at the the shape of the blastocyst and, and you can see whether it's deformed or not. And if it's not deformed, then it's a decent embryo hopefully but mm -hmm. you just can't see the the genetic makeup of it mm -hmm. um and then those are transferred into your uterus and if you get them tested then um they do a biopsy of the embryo they go into the freezer you get the test results back and then you have a better idea of which ones have um the chromosomes the way they should be mm -hmm. and then you get them defrosted or one or two usually it's one defrosted and transferred into your uterus mm -hmm. and bada bing bada boom hopefully you're pregnant mm -hmm. and so all told um i guess how many ivf w would you call them how many embryos cycles. did you have this, yeah how many cycles did you go through so i did three cycles of ivf um the first two i had a decent number of eggs but none of the blastocysts came back as viable so I basically had to start from scratch every time. Mm. And on the third one, I had one embryo that was viable and I transferred that one and then I promptly miscarried it. <laughs> so it was extremely- I can't imagine how that feels. It's terrible because, you know, for you're thinking like, what is wrong with me? Am I even like- did, like, I don't feel like a woman anymore. I'm, am I ever going to be a mother? There's like, what did I do wrong in the past? What did I do wrong in the last few days, months, year? Um, so you're, con you're constantly questioning yourself and your, your worth. Um, and, and on top of that, there's like a lot of uh, jealousy and anger that, and resentment that builds up inside you when, when you continually have failures or you continually are losing babies and you're looking at the world around you and you're like you feel like everybody's getting pregnant and it's not like you hate those people but there's like this deep like knee-jerk reaction at, at all of this it's like why isn't it happening for me why why doesn't my body work why 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 and yes uh 
Yes. I, I was going to ask you about that. I would think it would be really hard, um, you know, because it's almost like there's two groups of people, the people who are getting pregnant without help or any kinds of seemingly without any complications. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are going through all of this just to try to bring forth life. And I can imagine that you must feel it from all sides when you're going through this. Oh, yeah. And you have to be really protective of yourself and of your heart. Um and and also really protective of your friendships and and be aware that what you're feeling you know a lot of the comments that you find super duper triggering might come from a good place from the other person and they just don't know how triggering it is for you and and so it's it's really hard to navigate that because on the one hand you sometimes just want to punch them in the face Mm. but also you have to be like no they're my friend they actually mean well you kind of have to suck mm-hmm. it up a little bit and just rage in your own little corner or rage on, you know, if you're in a support group, that's kind of where you would be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, which I highly recommend support groups. And, and if you have, you know, close friends, I like, I cannot speak highly enough of the community that I had around me um, and the importance of having friends and family um or at the very least, some friends, if like if your family's not supporting your journey or if your friends aren't supporting your journey, like just distance yourself from that. Like you mm-hmm. need to help. You need to be surrounded by people who love you and who support you and who will help you, who will feed you when you're down, who will just sit there and listen, who won't judge you for your decisions and who may not understand what you're going through, but isn't going to compare your journey with somebody else or mm-hmm. isn't going to... Um, just disappear, ghost you because they're like, oh my God, I can't handle another sad story Mm, from this mm. person, right? Yes. You know, I I spoke with a friend of mine who I I didn't know, I met her more recently and um, we were talking about this subject. I mentioned to her that I was going to be interviewing you and she told me that she herself had gone through a 10-year journey and she felt the the 1990s were her lost decade because of this. And, and I, I wonder if, you know, you know, it was really painful for her and they, they, she and her partner went without vacations, went without nice things so they could save for IVF and save for all these treatments. And, you know, I think, are you in contact or did you know people in your support group who didn't end up having children? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah. And some of them were because they could no longer afford it. Um, some of it was because just they, they hit that wall and everybody's wall is different and everybody's mm-hmm. decision what, of what they're going to do beyond that wall is different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So some people just hit that wall. It was like, I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm done. Do you know, I, do you know why you didn't hit that wall or did you? Oh, hit I hit wall? it. Oh, I hit mm-hmm. it many times. And that's, so when I was doing IUI, I hit the wall when I had the baby with genetic fetal anomaly, where it's like, and the wall was not, I'm not going to have a baby. The wall was, I'm not going to do this procedure anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I hit another wall with IVF where I was like, I can't use my own eggs anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so done. Like the stats are completely against me. 
I am physically destroyed by the hormones, the needles, the all the things and the stress, mm -hmm. just the, like the constant waiting and the constant fluctuations that your body is going through. I just couldn't do it. And my I just I ended up with um, pneumonia for a long time. I think I had walking pneumonia from like mm -hmm. September till January. And then I had like full blown pneumonia for about a month in January. Mm -hmm. And it just just from the stress and from beating my body up. And I was like, I can't, I just can't keep going. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to make the decision that I would never have even considered and be like, no, I can't <laughs> think of that. Where I was like, okay, do I go with egg donors? And and so this is going back to what my counselor had said. So this is, um, so I, I had kind of given up a, most of my hope. I still wanted a baby and but I, I had no hope. And she was like, okay, go home, live a week with a, um, and live it as if you're a hundred percent, not going to have a baby. Mm -hmm. How does that feel in your mind and your body, and your soul? Like, yeah, just live it, live it a hundred percent and then live a second week. 100% you are going to have a baby and see how that feels. Mm. And so I started with the I'm not going to have a baby part. And I think I lasted like, I don't know, a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 this is this is not for me. Like, right. Wow. Okay. So then I had to figure out like logistically. Like, well, how... did you consider adoption? I'm sure people have asked <laughs> you that. But I, I have to tell yeah. you, this is the first time that popped into my head in, in talking with you. But I'm sure people said that to you, right? 99.99999% of people said that to me and it really became a trigger point for me and I just mm -hmm. I couldn't handle it anymore I'm like no I am not ready for adoption yes I have thought about it I have researched it adoption is not an easy solution it's expensive mm -hmm. it takes just as much time you may or may not end up with a baby if you do end up with a baby the if the birth mother is still alive mm -hmm. she can change her mind she has a grace period of, I can't remember uh, how long it is in Canada, but I, I think it might be up to a year mm -hmm. where she can change her mind and take her baby back. Mm -hmm. So there are absolutely no guarantees. You it's you have to go through the social work, like interviews with social workers. It's like, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and also, like, you just have to be really emotionally prepared for it. Like adoption... People who are fertile are never asked that question. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that needs to be asked. Like if you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have a baby. You're right. You're that right. should be put on the table for, for everyone. everybody. For right? everyone. It's are important. We... You're right. Yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. So, and it's not the purview of women who are having a hard time having conceiving or people who are in the LGBTQ plus community, it's not their purview to adopt. And, right, 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 right. I hear you. I really do. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up, because it's something that I had found happening to me when I thought about your story too, and I think I mentioned it when we talked the first time, is is there any misunderstanding or misconception about the socioeconomic status of people who go for this like you know because I thought it was someone it would have to be someone who had resources and yet my friend who I mentioned before for <laughs> one decade that it actually is for lots of people like working people do it people without a lot of funds do it it's just a it, there's really no class element in it 
it's amazing what your biological drive will make you do. And so I think that where very often there are financial barriers and sometimes it's almost criminally expensive to Mm -hmm. do, to Mm -hmm. undergo various treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, There are various ways of kind of like some people, I think, especially in the States have can get some insurance coverage for it in Canada. There is no insurance coverage, um, definitely not governmental coverage for IVF. Um, but also you can travel to different countries where it's a lot cheaper to go through IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and people also just work their ass off. Like you said, like your friend forewent vacations, she, you know, they really budgeted and scrimped and saved and you work towards it and you, you just really try. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your whole world becomes, um, making enough money or making your body uh the way it's supposed to be technically to medically whatever to have that baby like everything revolves around having a viable live birth and you know you said to me uh, this this really struck me you you said uh i am not a failure as a human but my body failed me Mm -hmm. and is that is that something that you felt for a long time and do you ever feel that way still uh, I, I definitely felt it through most of my pregnancy journey. Um, and I felt it through, it's a difficult question because when I finally did have my live birth, I, um, even that pregnancy was extremely challenging. And the first two months, especially after giving birth, we lived in the NICU. And and so, you know, on the one hand, I collected all my resources. Like it just pure luck. It feels like pure luck, to be honest, Mm -hmm. that I had, I finally got my rainbow babies. And And why are they called rainbow babies? Can you tell me? It's just. As far as I understand, it's just the term that's used um, for for babies that are born after loss. Ah, okay. So if you've had a miscarriage or other other way, like maybe you had a stillborn, maybe you had a miscarriage, um, when you have a live birth afterwards, they're just called rainbow babies. <laughs> yeah. It's, the, it's like the rainbow after the storm. You know? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So so this issue of your body and what it's supposed to do and the expectation and what is a woman and what is a mom and what makes a mom and what makes a woman, has that changed at all for you uh, going through this? It has because now like people ask me, oh, are these your only kids? And in my head, I'm like, no, actually, mm-hmm. I have four other kids, but they just mm-hmm. didn't make it Earthside. So I, I sometimes, um, I'm like, yeah, they're, they're the only two that made it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I, I really, it's really important for me to acknowledge the four babies that I lost. Um, and, and I think I'm still like right now, two years later, like I'm, I'm battling still the the postpartum body I'm I'm battling the way that my body has transformed 
throughout the journey from the first pregnancy all the way to now. Um, mm-hmm. because there's so many days where I just, I don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wonder what would it have, what would, what would my body look like if Dahlia, the first pregnancy had been a live birth? Would it be the way it is now? I mean, it's my body's not terrible and I, and I a hundred percent acknowledge and I'm grateful for the body that I have, but it's mm-hmm. just, it's so different and it, it's, um, and I think the fact that I have the twins that I have has reconciled myself a little bit to my, to my, to the, vi- not the viability, to the non-failureness of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there's sort of like, okay, my body did this. Yeah, my body did this. And and it was really cool, like, when I moved to egg donors, one of the big things that I was worried about was, am I going to bond with these children who are biologically, biologically, they have nothing to do with me, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're 100% the DNA of two other strangers that I looked up in a catalog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, here's her photo, here's his photo. Do they kind of mesh? Do I think it's going to be a nice looking baby? Is it going to like, what's her IQ? What's his IQ? What's her health history? What's his health history? Okay. Do they mix? Do they match? Like what, you know, it's like this weird process. And does she kind of look like me? Is he somebody that I would normally be attracted to? Like all Mm -hmm. these factors came into account. I was really concerned if I was going to bond with these babies, if I, if I was going to feel something for these babies when they came earthside and, and then I learned about epigenetics, which was super cool. Um, I've heard of this, but can you just explain it briefly? Because I'm trying to jog my memory here. Yeah. So, okay. So as far as I understand it, it's um, epigenetics is the way that your DNA reacts to the environment in which it is. So, for example, the babies, um, even though they are genetically completely dissimilar to me, they gestated inside my body so the environment that is my uterus influenced which dna strands would wake up or stay asleep Mm -hmm. Um, and and so it could turn out that they would have traits that were similar to me and where i would recognize myself in the babies Mm -hmm. and and that really helped reconcile myself to this whole idea of having babies who are genetically not my own and to whom I would have to explain once they get old enough, this is your genetic makeup. This mm-hmm. is my journey to you and, and how, you know, like explain to them how they came to be and, and that they have potentially a zillion siblings out there, mm-hmm. half siblings. So Miriam, where can people find you, your book and, and more about your story? Uh, so my website is uh, catalogbabynovel.com and catalog is spelled the Canadian way, G-U-E. Um, and I'm on Instagram at catalog underscore baby. Great. And I'll post those links in the show notes and also on my website. And I want to thank you. I, I'm, I feel really happy that we connected and that we were able to talk about this today. I feel like I learned a lot and, um, you know, I really, you made me think about things that I hadn't thought about before and, and opened my, my thinking about this. So I really appreciate what you're doing. 
Thank you. No, I really appreciate um, talking to you. It was a really interesting conversation. A lot of stuff came up that was unexpected and and new stuff that I talked about. So it was, oh, good. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.